Good morning, and welcome to episode 391 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I'm Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. It's Friday, so we are taking a break from the team previews until next week and doing our traditional email show. And you all responded with excellent emails, as usual. Uh, Where would you like to begin? Uh, So Benjamin says, uh, as someone who might charitably be described as a political operative, I spend a lot of time thinking about the composition of committees and elected bodies and how that composition affects decision making. The discussion of the Rockies co-GM situation got me thinking about how decision making could be done differently in front offices. So I thought I'd propose a couple scenarios. I was wondering how decision making in the following scenarios would be similar or different to today's model and whether decisions would ultimately be better or worse. Scenario is, uh, decisions are made by a group of seven co-GMs hired by the team to make decisions. It is assumed the skill level of each co-GM individually roughly mirrors the the distribution of talent in front offices generally. So essentially, instead of having a GM who makes decisions, you would have a body of GMs who would vote, like a Congress of GMs. Mm -hmm. Um, And all votes would be weighted equally. I am assuming decisions to trade, sign, etc. are made like they are in a parliamentary setting. They need to be proposed by a member of the body and voted on. So, what do you think? Do you ra- would you rather have seven GMs who are sort of, uh, I don't well, I mean, keeping each other in check and utilizing the wisdom of all seven of them, uh, but um, you know, each sort of diluting the others, or uh, would you rather just have the one strong man at the top? Uh. I well, a lot of teams sort of do have the co-GM thing almost in that there are a lot of front offices that have former GMs in senior advisor roles or special assistant roles uh, where they have the experience of having been GMs and they come in and give guidance. Um, but they don't vote. They don't They're... actually have a vote. No. Uh, right. I mean, they, they probably do vote. There probably are lots of situations where they vote, but it is advisory role only. Right. They don't actually, they don't have any, they don't have any formal authority. Yeah, I, I would not want an actual uh, voting body, I don't think. We, you and I have talked at some point about the fact that it's been a long time since a general manager was fired. Uh, I wrote something about this recently that will be at Grantland at some point in the next couple of weeks. And I talked to some GMs about it and they said uh, basically that, that it is kind of a committee almost at least more so than it used to be that GMs work a lot more closely with owners than they used to. They work a lot more closely with their fellow front office people than they used to because there are many more of them. So I feel like the GM on his own is already getting the input of lots of smart people, in some cases some former GMs, and is already incorporating all of that into his decisions and probably is not going against the majority all that often. Um, yeah, so, that's quite true. So I don't think uh, it would really change anything. Uh, you would just probably have more more contention, more animosity if you had actual GMs with equal responsibility voting against each other. Yeah, so I'm reading The, um, the Power Broker, the biography of Robert Moses, and um, at the beginning, before Robert Moses goes all evil, 
um, he's like a reformer and he's all like, you know, pro-democracy. And, and one of the things that he, uh, one of his beliefs is that you need to have a strong executive um, so that uh, somebody can be held accountable. And that sort of paradoxically, the stronger the executive branch, the more democratic it is, um, because uh, then the voters are sort of capable of holding somebody accountable and, you know, throwing the bum out when things uh, don't go right. Um, or rewarding and when things do go right. And so I think that in that sense, um, you know, we have a hard enough time figuring out how to evaluate GMs and figuring out what GMs uh, are responsible for and what we can blame them for or what we can credit them for. Um, I imagine it would be a lot easier if we were the owner of the team and we had access to all this information. But, you know, it's a challenge as is. And I feel like if you uh, had seven of these co-GMs, it would, it would essentially absolve any of, all of them of any blame. It would be impossible to ever identify who was good and who was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would be really no accountability whatsoever. So I don't know that it would necessarily lead to worse decisions, but it would lead to a lot less information about who's good at the job. And so in the long run, it could arguably lead to a lot worse decisions. It would turn into a reality show where you would have people like scheming to to get the majority to their decision where you don't want someone to be kicked off the island or kicked out of the house or whatever you want. You want to curry favor with the other people and and get a majority and there'd be backstabbing and it would be messy. Yep. So voting no on Proposition 7 co-GMs. All right. We're against it. On to the next. Mm. Okay. You want to read the triples one? Uh, Yeah, sure. Let me find it. Uh, So as I mentioned uh, early this week when when we first introduced our sponsor, Part of what we're going to be doing is uh, a, I guess you could call it a sponsored segment uh, during each email show on Fridays where we use the play index to do something, to look up some cool information or some interesting stat. Uh, And many of you who used to listen to Joe and Randy uh, heard them do the same thing and hopefully enjoyed it as I did. Uh, So in this case, we are actually just answering a, a listener email uh, by using the play index. Someone sent us a question. This was actually months ago, and it's just sort of been sitting there, and we've meant to, to answer it, but now we are going to do that with the power of the play index. So Christopher in Tennessee says, uh, while browsing baseball reference, I noticed that the number of triples last year in the American League, 348, was the lowest it's been since 1972 without even adjusting for the number of games played, which has only gone up. 10 to 15 years ago, the AL would routinely hit 420 to 440 triples a year, but since 2008, it's averaged about 10% less than that. I suppose in the 70s and 80s, there was artificial turf and speedy runners to account for the high numbers of triples, but what accounts for this huge drop since 2003? Power hitting doesn't seem to correlate, and I don't think there have been lots of new parks built since 2003, just two that I can think of. Could the drop in triples be related to either better fielding or a change in base running philosophy? If the latter, is it possible that a triple is less highly valued by teams than it used to be and coaches have been instructed to keep runners at second? Or do we have just a bunch of really slow runners right now? The NL had a similarly significant drop last year, but it's more difficult to spot a clear trend there. Yeah, so I uh, I didn't want to just limit it to the to the recent past. So um, I went back uh, to the '70s and started looking at the differences 
to even because I don't even think it's actually that necessarily that easy to explain from the seventies to now. Um, and you know, Chris mentions of you know that artificial turf and speedy runners might account for the high number back then, and and you know he asks at the end, do we just have a bunch of really slow runners right now? And and basically, there's there's you know kind of three ways that you could imagine this. One is that there are fewer fast runners and therefore fewer guys getting triples. Um, another is that there are more slow runners, and therefore more triple-averse hitters. Um, and the third is that there's some variable in the environment, either strategically or, um, you know, ballpark-wise or, you know, defense-wise or, or something that is affecting all runners, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so first I wanted to see whether there were fewer fast runners, because um, the the very fastest, the elite the elite triples guys, you would think uh, they wouldn't change much, right? Like there would be there would there would still be super fast guys out there. The, the very fastest guys, the very best hitters, the very best triples hitters, are they're they're secure in their spot in the game. They're not. It's not like like baseball, you know, in the post Moneyball era, doesn't have room for Lance Johnson, right? The, the mm-hmm. guys who who are good. And who hit triples are going to survive, and so, um, so first I looked at how many um, how many players uh, in each decade had at least fourteen triples in a single season, mm-hmm. and so uh, so for that, if you go to the batting uh, the batting season finder, you can you can find out um, how many players in each season uh, match any, a certain criteria, and so I did that for each decade, and um, so there there actually uh, if you set 14 as the level for you know elite triples hitting um it does go down there are fewer elite hitters so there were 20 uh elite triples hitters so there were 20 in the 70s uh there were only eight in the 90s it bounced back there were 13 in the 2000s and um as christopher noted there are more games being played now so that dilutes it even further uh i uh, looked for how many uh player seasons of 120 plus games there were in each decade um, and uh, there, of course, are, were more in the 2000s because of expansion. Um, and so if you start looking at how many seasons, how many player seasons it takes to get a 14-triple season, uh, it's, about twi- you know, it's about half as rare now, or twice as rare, twice as rare, half as frequent yes. uh, now as it was in the 70s. And so that seems pretty telling, the fact that uh, even the very fastest runners uh, who you wouldn't think would be disappearing are nonetheless hitting fewer triples. And to uh, to sort of validate this claim that these guys wouldn't be disappearing, I, I uh, filtered for players with at least two war, uh, which is to say they're at least average, and that's actually kind of high. I mean, there's a lot. Obviously, there's a lot of guys. There's room in the league for a lot of guys who are below two war. But uh, you know, even if you set it at two war. Um, about 85% of the elite triples seasons were by players who had two war or more. So you can say very, I, I would say with, with virtually 100% certainty that those guys would be around in any generation. So it's not like mm-hmm. the league is kicking those guys out. And in fact, of the 11 below average seasons of these triples, um, most of them actually came in the 2000s. So there's actually more room in the league for bad playing good triples hitters than there used to be. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that invalidates the the one possibility. So then you you um, so then you start thinking, well, okay, so maybe it's the ballparks, which would 
that would obviously that would make sense, right? There's been mm-hmm. a lot of different ballparks. So um, Boston though has the same park since the 70s. Uh, the Cubs have the same park since the 70s. The Dodgers have the same park since the 70s. So those three things didn't change. Mm-hmm. So uh, looking at the team splits, um, uh, you can find out you know how uh, you know you can find out how many triples are hit. Uh, in each ballpark in each season. And so I looked at each of those ballparks to see which seasons had the most triples. Uh-huh. And in fact, yes, they're overwhelmingly concentrated in the 70s and 80s. Um, of the, you know, of the 30 most common, the, the top 10 triple seasons for each park, so a total of 30 seasons, about half of them took place in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so those ballparks didn't change. So you wouldn't uh, there's clearly something going on that is bigger than ballpark because even when the ballpark doesn't change, uh, triples nonetheless have gone way down. So those are two pretty big factors that um, uh, that you know you could sort of rule out. So uh, what is left, Ben? What do you think is left? Uh, well, first I have of all, some more. I have more stuff too, but I want to hear your voice. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I mean, I, I think. You know, you went back to the 70s. If you had gone back even further, you would have seen that that the decline has has been going on much longer than that. Um, there was a, an article by Dan Fox about it at BP in 2007, and he went back to you know 1900, and it's been a pretty steady decline, really throughout the century. It was it was sort of uh, level for maybe the first 20 years or so of the century. Since then, it's just been very steadily declining with the odd little blip here and there. Um, and right, I, I don't think there is any way that uh, you could convince me that there are not as many fast runners or that there are slower runners today than there used to be, as we discussed recently. The fact that neither of us is convinced that players from previous eras could even make the league today or just even looking at, you know, track and field records that have constantly fallen and fallen. Um, there's, there's, I don't think you could persuade me that people just aren't as fast. So uh, I guess it probably would have to come down to defense. Um, yeah. And Dan Fox's conclusion in that article, uh, he actually looked to see whether it was that, like, bulkier players might be causing it, and he he uh, decided that that was not the case. So he said, uh, in reviewing the other theories, we are then left with better outfield positioning, better throwing arms, better cutoffs, in short, increasing excellence on the defensive side of the game. And he also did mention the, the standardization of ballparks as a possible reason. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes sense to me. I guess... Uh, you probably could figure out whether whether teams have decided that it's not as good a play. Like if you're already at second, maybe teams are being more conservative about going to third because you'd probably score from second on a single anyway. Um, you could look to see, I, I suppose, how often guys were thrown out at third trying to stretch a double or, or something like that. Maybe the, the break-even rate there has changed or teams are more aware of it, but, um, probably, yeah, there is a very strong correlation, uh, year to year between triples and stolen base attempts. 
And so if you wanted to convince yourself that this is a, a matter of will, a matter of strategy and desire, that might be suggestive. But I would think that that's probably a coincidence, that there's a, you know, some sort of uh, variable that tracks with both of those. Um, and um, just out of curiosity, uh, between height and weight, uh, how strong would you think the correlations are between those and and player triples, individuals height, individuals weight, and their triples rate? Um, uh, probably a, like a a negative point three. It is it actually for weight. It is exactly negative point three. Huh. Okay. So. Well done. For height, it's about negative half. It's about half that. So, uh-huh. and it's about uh, the correlation between stolen base attempts and triples for individual players is um, about 0.5, which is not as as high as I expected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's. Um, I, I mean, the, the thing about it is that I, I think that um, when you say there's not fewer fast guys, well, that, I mean, obviously. Even if there are, are more fast guys, even if the average player is faster, as we generally believe, the defense is going to be faster too. So the question is, are there fewer kind of fast guys relative to the rest of the league or more slow guys? And I mean, the, the, it just like if you catch the ball, then it it wipes out the triple, right? So like mm-hmm. it, it feels like, like the, I don't know, I don't quite know how to put this, but the, the defender is in a fixed zone and um he uh, i'm not gonna be able to say this i'm not i just don't know how to i don't know where to go with this but i i would think i guess what i'm saying without being able to explain it uh is if you added 10 percent speed to the runner and 10 percent speed to the fielder i would expect that to lead to a huge drop in triples mm-hmm. um we have talked about the fact that the rising strikeout rate maybe makes it more tolerable to play a poor defender because uh there are just fewer balls in play so if you stick an adam dunn out in left field or something he's not going to get as many opportunities as he would have been or a player like like him would have at one time um so maybe that would then work against that trend right because you'd be more willing to put someone like that out there but maybe just the the overall athleticism has increased to the point that that washes that out. Well, it's interesting you mention that because that seems, I didn't even think about that, but that seems like sort of an obvious factor too that I should have thought of that, um, that instead of looking at triples per game, we really should have looked at triples per ball in play because yeah. there's a lot fewer balls in play now. There are probably, what, there are 20% fewer balls in play now than there were yeah. Uh, in the seventies, right? And when, yeah, when Dan Fox did it, he did triples per at bat, I think, or triple per plate appearances. Um, but yeah, Which, I, yeah, I, ideally, it, it he sh- would. Yeah. It should be per balls in play. Mm-hmm. That seems that seems kind of obvious now, in retrospect. Yeah, um, but I'm sure it would show something similar. Um, I yeah, but a lot less. Mm-hmm. Yes, probably. Uh, Jeff Sullivan wrote about it recently, and he pointed out that that the decline in triples rate last season was really extreme. It was like 18% decline just from 2012 to 2013, which is 
kind of crazy. And he he mentioned that there had been really no year with that large a decline since you know 1901 to 1902. I can't think of any reason why suddenly uh, it would change to that degree, um, unless yeah, it's just the the player pool. Well, the was... exact same. No, the exact same thing happened with stolen base attempts, though. Right. Right. Which the same thing. It was like a one year drop that was totally unexplainable. Yeah. So that's kind of weird. It is weird. This is what keeps this is what keeps us coming back to this really strange sport that would otherwise be boring if we didn't have mysteries like triples and stolen bases. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose that concludes the, the the baseball reference play index portion of this podcast. So uh, you know, you know, there were there were point one six triples per game last year, mm-hmm. and there were point two per game in nineteen seventy two, which isn't actually that big a difference. You know, like I don't. It doesn't look like there was a a particularly steady. I mean, there's the decline happened from like 1939-1940 then there was a steady decline until about 1970 and it's actually been kind of flat since then hmm. like it's been between you know there's been a couple years where it's spiked up to 23-24 but for the most part there have been since 72 there have been a lot of years between 0.2 you know 0.8 and 0.22 which is a you know a, a fairly small range and um, and it's moved around a lot. So actually, the uh, to some degree, maybe the premise was overstated. Yeah, could be. Maybe I don't know. When there are more home runs, there are fewer triples, and I don't know why that would be. When there are more doubles, there are fewer triples, and I can sort of understand why that would be. But um, there is there is a way that triples disappeared in the '90s when offense was up that makes you think that there might be something strange. Can we just agree that this is probably mostly about Robinson Cano not hustling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just gets to second and says, eh, not going to go yeah. for it. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I think that makes all, sense. All right. So that's good. Uh, so should we um, should we just have a, like a, sub, a subcategory of emails that's just play index? Um, request because yeah, sure. I mean, that's probably a, a, good, a good way to, to prompt these. Yeah, we would we would prefer that you subscribe to the play index and do the research yourself. Uh, but if you oh yeah yeah if you have ideas and suggestions, then we we will certainly use them. All right. So Andy says I uh, recently explained to a friend of mine that in baseball, once a player comes out of the game, he can't return. He was baffled by this. Which made me realize that unless you played in high school or something, you have to learn this rule from your dad. Think about it. It's not like this is ever mentioned in broadcasts, and it would be weird if they did. But it's very key to strategy. Are there any other baseball rules like this? That's a really good question because it's true. In Little League, you get to come in and out at will. And in you know some other sports, many other sports, uh, the majority of other sports, I would say, you get to come in and out. And it isn't something that would ever be said in a broadcast. So unless you're watching a fair number of games, um, you might not pick this up. So, uh, and yet it seems so obvious to you. I mean, it's so obvious that that's why you would never mention it. Can you imagine if Vin Scully, when there was a double switch, said, and for those of you at home, (laughs) (laughs) 
he can't come back into the game now. Uh, that would be really weird, right? So are there right. other rules? Are there other rules that you can think of that we take for granted that are incredibly important to the strategy of the game and that you would never mention in a broadcast? Uh and it's hard to think about baseball from the perspective of not knowing anything about baseball. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a good observation. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is it? Does uh, it have? I mean, eh? No, I got nothing. I I don't have anything either. I mean, like the force out is actually mentioned like they mm. they do talk about force outs a surprising amount of time yes they they and, talk about what what base the force is at yeah they talk about you know setting up a force and they talk about needing to tag the runner because there isn't a force mm -hmm. and so actually that does come up you don't have to watch that closely i wouldn't feel like to be exposed to that rule you wouldn't need your dad to tell you that one mm-hmm um, the the foul ball not being strike three becomes pretty obvious yeah. by the third time. Uh -huh. By the third time it happens, uh, I guess tagging up. Mm. No one would ever really explain the mechanics of tagging up, well, although you'd figure you figure out you get those. You figure those, out that's what happened. You get those split screen shots where they show the guy catching the ball timed up with the guy with his foot on the bag. Uh, so that you can see whether he left before it was in the glove or not. So once in a while you get one of those, and it would be pretty obvious what was going on there. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to keep thinking about this one, but not yes. not in not in real time. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So Eric uh, Hartman uh, says, uh, with the whole mess of the Phillies ratting on a draft pick of theirs to the NCAA. There's been a sentiment from many writers that the Phillies might run into some issues in future drafts due to their picks not trusting them. While I share their disdain for what the organization did, I can't imagine a scenario in which this actually hurts them, the Phillies. I'm often skeptical when there are claims that big league teams will have trouble attracting talent. I feel like Eric is subtweeting us in this question because we <laughs> say this. Uh, like, like was said in recent years with the Marlins. You can say our name, Eric. <laughs> we, we said it. We stand by it. Mm -hmm. I'm even more skeptical that this will have the slightest difference for their draft. Uh, what leverage do these players have? We should um, explain what he's talking about. Uh, there is we a, should, yeah. The story is that the, a, a fifth-round draftee of the Phillies last summer, Ben Wetzler, uh, he did not end up signing with the Phillies. Uh, he and an, another guy who signed in the sixth round returned to school for their senior years. And the Phillies, according to a report by Aaron Fitt, uh, tipped off the NCAA that both of the players were using agents, which is against NCAA rules. Of course, NCAA players are allowed to have advisors uh, who, are, who are the same people who are agents for professionals, but uh, they are called advisors for amateurs, and uh, it's sort of a murky, murky difference. Uh, so... Apparently, or at least the implication of this report is that the Phillies just vindictively uh, wanted to get this guy in trouble for whatever reason because he didn't sign with them, um, which, if true, is is not very nice. It seems like there should be some some more to that story that maybe we haven't heard yet, but 
Uh, and of course, we don't know whether whether their accusation was even true. The case is still being reviewed. Um, but uh, what right. what would you get? What would you guess is the something more to this story? Do you have a, any? I, I really, I I mean, I don't know. I can't I can't even think of a motivation that the Phillies would have to do this other than vengeance, right? I mean, there's is there? I mean, we don't. You know, maybe. Maybe the the negotiations were somehow so acrimonious. Maybe this guy, you know, made fun of Ruben Amaro's mother. We don't know what happened. Um, we don't know whether this guy should be an object of sympathy or whether there was some fault on his part. But it's it's hard to imagine that that there's really any incentive for the the Phillies or any team to to do this other than to get even. Yeah, my guess would. My guess would be totally, totally uninformed. My guess would be that that when we talk about the Phillies doing this, that maybe what we're actually talking about is one guy. The Phillies did this. Could be, like, yeah. That one guy is kind of right now, really in a lot of trouble because it's right. not it's not cool to do that. Uh-huh. Um, and so it, I don't know. It, it seems I don't know. It seems maybe more likely that this is not a team policy yeah. so much as just one guy who couldn't hold his tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll find out, right? Won't we? So. Anyway, the the point though that Eric was asking about, I think is um, I think that um, Randy and 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 uh, Dane Perry, who he cites, uh, are probably correct, and I think everybody who's saying this is probably correct that the Phillies might run into some issues in future drafts because um, basically there are sort of three things a scout does. One is figures out how good the guy is at playing baseball, and one is tries to convince him to sign. Uh, with with the team after you know after he's drafted, and the third is to have an idea of whether the player is going to sign. So that means knowing what his you know basically knowing what his salary demand or his uh you know his signing demand is going to be. And usually that means I don't know if usually is the right word, but my sense is that very very often perhaps usually uh, it's the case that actually there is some agreement made before the draft has even happened that that there are conversations going on between the player and the the team uh letting the team know what this guy's going to ask for maybe being extremely explicit about it and having an arrangement all but in writing and so you need to be able to get that information to be on an even playing field with everybody else that's a a really important information a piece of information for a team to have to know if they're going to be able to sign the guy um, and to know what it's going to take out of their bonus pool and if uh, the Phillies run into a situation where there are a lot of a lot of teams and agents who aren't will or players and agents who aren't willing to talk to them before the draft. They're not going to have access to a, a really crucial piece of information that other teams are going to have access to. I think Eric's right that once you draft the guy, he's not going to. I mean, he's got no way to take it out on you. I mean, the system is set up to give teams all the leverage, um, but um, it it feels like there could be a situation where the Phillies are going to have. Uh, more unsigned picks than other teams if this happened or you know have a harder time estimating how much of their bonus pool uh, they're going to need uh, for certain players mm-hmm. um, because of this and um, yeah so that I, I guess that's uh, does that seem reasonable to you that yeah. seems like what everybody's so. worried about right mm-hmm. it's also possible it's conceivably possible that like in fact all teams want to do this and when they go to the GM's meetings they all talk about how they should really put their foot down uh-huh. and the Phillies just got ahead of the game and they, <laughs> they're like 
yeah, guys, let's do it. And, and, and everybody else is like, no, we were just complaining. We weren't ready to like do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would be, I feel like, um, that, that having no agents for any of these players probably actually wouldn't help teams that much. I, I think that players get paid a bit more because of agents, mm-hmm. but, but, and, and that's good for the players, but also players sign more because of the agents. The agents are sort of a, um, a matchmaker to some degree. They they want to they want to get you signed, and they want to get you you know signed for you know a figure that you guys both agree on. And if there were no agents, if they were just you know dealing directly with the players, then it would kind of be hard to make um, some of these deals happen. I would think, and so you probably would have more more bad negotiations, more negotiations that go in in wildly different directions and end up with who are signing. So I think that probably for the most part, agents are kind of good for the game, but um, if you knew as soon as a player uh, brought his agent into the conversation that he couldn't go back to call, like if you set up a, a system where the player could either talk to you without an agent and then go back to college or talk to you with an agent but now he can't go back to college, that you have all the power once he brings the agent in because he can't go back to college, then the club would have a huge upper hand, right? It would be like mm-hmm. everybody would turn into a fourth year, you know, senior with mm-hmm. no other, no other options. So, uh, so yeah, probably agents, uh, if, if everybody's using agents, I think it's good for the game, but if you could, um, I don't know, in a, in a, in a system where some players don't use agents and some do, you probably would drive a lot of prices down. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seems, seems reasonable. Anyway. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. This is a crazy thing. It is. I don't. I don't think it's completely unprecedented. I know there was something with the Blue Jays and James Paxton, and Jim Callis said there was something with the White Sox and AJ Hinch many years ago. Um, yeah. But it is. It's not something that we hear about often. Mm-mm, no. All right, uh, Josh. Uh, hey guys, what if starting this year, saves were awarded to the reliever that came in and succeeded at the highest leverage situation? Um, with the definition change, how many managers would immediately start using their closer in the sixth, seventh, or eighth in high leverage situations? Mm-hmm. And midway, or at least by the end of the season, sorry, would, uh, okay, sorry, let me rephrase. How many managers would immediately change their strategy? How many would change their strategy midway through the first season? So not immediately, but not long after, mm-hmm. or never change? Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically the question is, now that the save, I mean, we all think that the save dictates strategy. There seems to be a lot of evidence that the save dictates strategy. The save should never dictate strategy, probably. Stats shouldn't drive um, strategy. Winning should drive strategy. However, uh, now that the idea of the ninth inning guy is firmly in place, do you think changing the stat would change the usage? Uh, I think it would, but I think... The majority of managers would not change, at least initially, probably even in the first season. Um, I think, uh, for one thing, managers really like being able to say, this is my seventh inning guy, this is my eighth inning guy, this is my ninth inning guy. And they always say that that relievers also like that and value that certainty. Um, but I think the managers like it just as much as the pitchers do, uh, in that they can't be second-guessed as much. I, I, I remember... Jim Leland talking about this in the playoffs a couple of years ago, uh, how it's such a luxury to just have a closer that you 
always bring in in this spot because no one will second guess that you brought that guy in, even if he blows the game. Uh, so there's that. Managers have gotten accustomed to that. There's also the fact that they've they've kind of uh, painted themselves into a corner in that they've been justifying the ninth inning thing for so long now that uh, they can't really abandon that position right away, right? Because there's, there's the whole ninth inning mentality and the idea that the ninth inning is different from every other inning. And you hear, you know, most managers will say something like that at some point. Um, so if they were to just abandon it immediately, that'd be a, a notable flip-flop. Um, so I don't know. You might see some of the more progressive managers do it. Or maybe you would see them change the narrative uh, somehow and say, oh, it, only the, the guy with the closer mentality can come in at the highest leverage spot. But I think it would it would take a while for that change to happen. I think it would eventually. Let me ask you this. How long would it take for the average closer to ask yeah, or if not, right. if not ask, because he just wants to you know do his job, uh, to desire the mm-hmm. new saves role as opposed to the ninth <laughs> inning? I think probably five minutes. Um, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're a closer going into a contract year, uh, you're you're not going to be happy about not getting any saves all of a sudden, unless, uh, well, I don't know if, I mean, are are teams paying for saves currently? Do you think? Uh, to what extent are they paying for saves, um, as opposed to I, just? I think they're paying. I think they're paying a lot less for saves than players think they're paying for right. saves. Yes. Uh, so you're. Yeah, you're right. So either way, it's it's the same. A player would would probably push to get the saves, but uh, I don't know. It it seems like it would immediately make the saves make the save stat look silly if the the players who were getting all the saves in one season were getting no saves the, the following season. That would. That would just kind of point out how absurd the stat is, uh, and maybe it would just be a non-issue. The premise of the question is also kind of funny and um, probably true, but like the idea that if they changed what a save was, that that all of a sudden we would be incapable as a species of counting how many times a person pitched the ninth inning in a close game. Like, mm-hmm. like we couldn't just come up with another word for that, yeah. <laughs> you know? It, we just and, look at games finished instead, or something. So yeah, let's so let's imagine that let's imagine that they changed what a save was, but they also kept track of saves and they called them something else, like games finished, like close games finished. Okay, mm-hmm. exactly. You call it close games finished. In ten years, a which one is kind of more prominent on you know in the player's uh, player bio in his in his team handbook, mm-hmm. and which one. Uh, do players pursue more? Does the does the word save still hold its cachet? Or uh, yeah, I don't I I don't know if it does because I I feel like a lot of the the saves cachet is the 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 ninth inning attachment, the idea mm-hmm. that you are the guy on the mound when the game is won. Um, that kind of lends it some prestige value that it wouldn't have anymore. So. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think you would people. I th- I think you'd see people shift to the the close games finished. 
Do you think Mariano Rivera could have killed the save if in his <laughs> la- if in his last five years he had insisted he had no interest in saves anymore? Please bring me in the the sixth inning when it's necessary, and had just completely punted on the idea, and maybe even in in a, in coordination with this, uh, a a stat was developed to reflect what he was doing. You know, uh-huh. as as various uh, saber sites have have toyed with a stat that, you know, mm-hmm. like a shutdown stat, right? Right. Um, could Mariano Rivera have, have undone what Jerome Holtzman uh, <laughs> wrought? I think he could have, and I think uh, I think he really let the world down by not yeah. speaking out. It would have been his Nixon goes to China <laughs> thing. You know, if Mariano right. Rivera doesn't care about saves, I mean, he's the only person who can safely mock the save, you know? Right. He's. I mean, he does a lot of philanthropy, but he, <laughs> he, he could have stepped forward for an issue that people really care about and, and gotten rid of the saves. So um, bad job by Rivera. <laughs> All right. Mike asks, uh, uh, what is a walk worth in singles? Um, how much is a walk worth compared to a single? About 0.8. A walk is about 0.8 of a single. Mm-hmm. So that answers that. Quick one. Yeah. Um, all right. I guess the last one should be, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> how about, there's a few in here that I like. Uh, all right. Scott asks, MLB TV prevents you from watching your local market team online. Fans therefore must, uh, sorry, fans must therefore watch most local games on cable. Thus, cable companies are falling all over themselves to acquire teams' TV rights. We know this. Aren't the blackout rules then specifically designed to protect cable companies who pay insane rights fees to teams? If so, we'll never see the blackouts lifted, right? Um, yeah, so I actually um, don't consider blackouts to be um, this, like, uh, blemish on Bud Selig's record at all because yeah it seems like they go hand in hand um, there's more money to be made for the sport if you can charge cable companies all this money and obviously you have to give something up and what you give up is your ability to watch things for cheap on the internet so somebody has to pay for those things I would the, I, I mean would, maybe the blemish the, is that the, the Saturday blackouts are absurd yeah, and and maybe some of the the blackout some, areas are strange, yeah. so that yeah. you are not actually in the team's local market when you're blacked out of that team. Yeah, um, but the and, the concept so yeah. itself, yeah. The yeah, you're right. So there are some details that are problematic, um, and I I mean I think the I think that the idea that you can't watch um, a baseball game on a Saturday afternoon unless you want to watch this like sort of third tier regional game that's not even in your region is kind of awful. Um, so that's poorly executed, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I think that, um, that it's conceivable that we'll see a day not too long from now when you can, uh, pay to have your blackouts lifted, but the money would be pretty substantial. I would, I would imagine that the money might be something close to the cost that you already pay for MLB TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it would go to the cable companies because the cable companies make a huge profit on this. So mm-hmm. Um, and they deserve to, they, well, I don't know, I guess they deserve to, it seems to me they deserve to, they negotiated, they negotiated for these rights under the, uh, you know, under the assumption that they would be able to, to limit you. So it would be weird to take that away from them now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't like blackouts, but I mean, there are so many things in this world that you, you don't, you know, you don't get unfettered access to. Mm-hmm. I understand that there are restrictions on what I'm allowed to have. 
Yeah. Plus, as you always point the, out, if you're willing to wait long enough, you can watch anything. Yeah, I guess the frustrating thing is that there most things that um, most things that most things are buyable. You know, most things can be bought. At, uh-huh. You know, if you're if you're willing to pay more for them, and I think there are a lot of fans that are willing to pay more uh, to have blackout free uh, access, but there isn't an option for that. You you can't. No matter how much you're willing to spend to see certain teams play certain games, you can't do it. And it would be, it, I think that the the ultimate solution is that you have a means uh, to pay for those games. Could go to them. Not if you're, yeah. You know, not if you're in, you know. A handful of cities where you really can't go to them. I mean, yeah. you can't you can't just you can't just decide you're going to go to a Giants game, for instance, on Tuesday at six forty-five. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Yeah. Good questions. Very good questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if you want to delve into the mystery of triple rates and uh, subscribe to the Baseball Reference Play Index, you can use our coupon code BP to get a six dollar discount. Uh, we would love for you to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show on iTunes, uh, to join our Facebook group, which is ever, ever growing, uh, at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And please, uh, send us emails for next week's show at podcast at baseball Uh, so have a wonderful weekend. We will be back with Toronto on Monday. <laughs>